Section number 29 of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. Section 29, Chapter 16, The Art of Living, Part 1. Deem no man in any age gentle for his lineage, though he be not highly born, he is gentle, if he doth, what longeth to a gentleman. Chaucer Every one is the son of his own work. Cervantes Serve a noble disposition, though poor. The time comes that he will repay thee. George Herbert Although men are accused for not knowing their own weakness, yet perhaps as few know their own strength. It is in men as in soils, where sometimes there is a vein of gold, which the owner knows not of. Swift Let not what I cannot have my cheer of mind destroy. Sibber The art of living deserves a place among the fine arts. Like literature, it may be ranked with the humanities. It is the art of turning the means of living to the best account, of making the best of everything. It is the art of extracting from life its highest enjoyment, and, through it, of reaching its highest results. To live happily, the exercise of no small degree of art is required. Like poetry and painting, the art of living comes chiefly by nature, but all can cultivate and develop it. It can be fostered by parents and teachers, and perfected by self-culture. Without intelligence, it cannot exist. Happiness is not like a large and beautiful gem, so uncommon and rare, that all search for it is vain, all efforts to obtain it hopeless. But it consists of a series of smaller and commoner gems, grouped and set together, forming a pleasing and graceful whole. Happiness consists in the enjoyment of little pleasures scattered along the common path of life, which, in the eager search for some great and exciting joy, we are apt to overlook. It finds delight in the performance of common duties, faithfully and honorably fulfilled. The art of living is abundantly exemplified in actual life. Take two men of equal means, one of whom knows the art of living and the other not. The one has the seeing eye and the intelligent mind. Nature is ever new to him and full of beauty. He can live in the present, rehearse the past, or anticipate the glory of the future. With him, life has a deep meaning and requires the performance of duties which are satisfactory to his conscience and are therefore pleasurable. He improves himself, acts upon his age, helps to elevate the depressed classes, and is active in every good work. His hand is never tired, his mind is never weary. He goes through life joyfully, helping others to its enjoyment. Intelligence, ever expanding, gives him every day fresh insight into men and things. He lays down his life full of honor and blessing, and his greatest monument is the good deeds he has done and the beneficent example he has set before his fellow creatures. The other has comparatively little pleasure in life. He has scarcely reached manhood ere he has exhausted its enjoyments. Money has done everything that it could for him, yet he feels life to be vacant and cheerless. Traveling does him no good, for, for him, history has no meaning. He is only alive to the impositions of innkeepers and couriers, 
and the disagreeableness of traveling for days amidst great mountains among peasants and sheep cramped up in a carriage picture galleries he feels to be a bore and he looks into them because other people do these pleasures soon tire him and he becomes blasé when he grows old and has run the round of fashionable dissipations and there is nothing left which he can relish life becomes a masquerade in which he recognizes only knaves hypocrites and flatterers though he does not enjoy life yet he is terrified to leave it then the curtain falls with all his wealth life has been to him a failure for he has not known the art of living without which life cannot be enjoyed it is not wealth that gives the true zest to life but reflection appreciation taste culture above all the seeing eye and the feeling heart are indispensable with these the humblest lot may be made blessed labor and toil may be associated with the highest thoughts and the purest tastes the lot of labor may thus become elevated and ennobled montaigne observes that all moral philosophy is as applicable to a vulgar and private life as to the most splendid every man carries the entire form of the human condition within him even in material comfort good taste is a real economist as well as an enhancer of joy scarcely have you passed the doorstep of your friend's house when you can detect whether taste presides within it or not there is an air of neatness order arrangement grace and refinement that gives a thrill of pleasure though you cannot define it or explain how it is there is a flower in the window or a picture against the wall that marks the home of taste a bird sings at the window sill books lie about and the furniture though common is tidy suitable and it may be even elegant the art of living extends to all the economies of the household it selects wholesome food and serves it with taste there is no profusion the fare may be very humble but it has a savor about it everything is so clean and neat the water so sparkles in the glass that you do not desire richer viands or a more exciting beverage look into another house and you will see profusion enough without either taste or order the expenditure is larger and yet you do not feel at home there the atmosphere seems to be full of discomfort books hats shawls and stockings in course of repair are strewn about two or three chairs are loaded with goods the rooms are hugger mugger no matter how much money is spent it does not mend matters taste is wanting for the manager of the household has not yet learnt the art of living you see the same contrast in cottage life the lot of poverty is sweetened by taste it selects the healthiest openness neighborhood where the air is pure and the streets are clean you see at a glance by the sanded doorstep and the window panes without a speck perhaps blooming roses or geraniums shining through them that the tenant within however poor knows the art of making the best of his lot how different from the foul cottage dwellings you see elsewhere with the dirty children playing in the gutters the slattern-like women lounging by the door cheek and the air of sullen poverty that seems to pervade the place and yet the weekly income in the former house may be no greater perhaps even less than in that of the other how is it that of two men working in the same field or in the same shop one is merry as a lark always cheerful well clad and as clean as his work will allow him to be 
comes out on Sunday mornings in his best suit to go to church with his family, is never without a penny in his purse, and has something besides in the savings bank, is a reader of books and a subscriber to a newspaper, besides taking in some literary journal for family reading, whilst the other man, with equal or even superior weekly wages, comes to work in the mornings sour and sad, is always full of grumbling, is badly clad and badly shod, is never seen out of his house on Sundays till about midday, when he appears in his shirt sleeves, his face unwashed, his hair unkempt, his eyes bleared and bloodshot, his children left to run about the gutters with no one apparently to care for them, is always at his last coin, except on Saturday night, and then he has a long score of borrowings to repay, belongs to no club, has nothing saved, but lives literally from hand to mouth, reads none, thinks none, but only toils, eats, drinks, and sleeps. Why is it that there is so remarkable a difference between these two men? Simply for this reason, that the one has the intelligence and the art to extract joy and happiness from life, to be happy himself, and to make those about him happy, whereas the other has not cultivated his intelligence, and knows nothing whatever of the art of either making himself or his family happy. With the one, life is a scene of loving, helping, and sympathizing, of carefulness, forethought, and calculation, of reflection, action, and duty. With the other, it is only a rough scramble for meat and drink, duty is not thought of, reflection is banished, prudent forethought is never for a moment entertained. But look to the result. The former is respected by his fellow workmen and beloved by his family. He is an example of well-being and well-doing to all who are within reach of his influence, whereas the other is as unreflective and miserable as nature will allow him to be. He is shunned by good men, his family are afraid at the sound of his footsteps, his wife perhaps trembling at his approach. He dies without leaving any regrets behind him, except, it may be, on the part of his family, who are left to be maintained by the charity of the public or by the pittance doled out by the overseers. For these reasons, it is worth every man's while to study the important art of living happily. Even the poorest man may by this means extract an increased amount of joy and blessing from life. The world need not be a veil of tears, unless we ourselves will it to be so. We have the command, to a great extent, over our own lot. At all events, our mind is our own possession. We can cherish happy thoughts here. We can regulate and control our tempers and dispositions to a considerable extent. We can educate ourselves and bring out the better part of our nature, which in most men is allowed to sleep a deep sleep. We can read good books cherish pure thoughts, and lead lives of peace, temperance, and virtue, so as to secure the respect of good men and transmit the blessing of a faithful example to our successors. The art of living is best exhibited in the home. The first condition of a happy home, where good influences prevail over bad ones, is comfort. Where there are carking cares, querulousness, untidiness, slovenliness, and dirt, there can be little comfort either for man or woman. The husband, who has been working all day, expects to have something as a compensation for his toil. The least that his wife can do for him is to make his house snug, clean, and tidy, against his homecoming at eve. That is the truest economy, the best housekeeping, the worthiest domestic management, 
which makes the home so pleasant and agreeable that a man feels when approaching it that he is about to enter a sanctuary and that when there there is no alehouse attraction that can draw him away from it some say that we worship comfort too much the word is essentially english and is said to be untranslatable in its full meaning into any foreign language it is intimately connected with the fireside in warmer climes people contrive to live out of doors they sun themselves in the streets half their life is in public the genial air woos them forth and keeps them abroad they enter their houses merely to eat and sleep they can scarcely be said to live there how different it is with us the raw air without during so many months of the year drives us within doors hence we cultivate all manner of home pleasures hence the host of delightful associations which rise up in the mind at the mention of the word home hence our household god comfort we are not satisfied merely with a home it must be comfortable the most wretched indeed are those who have no homes the homeless but not less wretched are those whose homes are without comfort those of whom charles lamb once said the homes of the very poor are no homes it is comfort then that is the soul of the home its essential principle its vital element comfort does not mean merely warmth good furniture good eating and drinking it means something higher than this it means cleanliness pure air order frugality in a word house thrift and domestic government comfort is the soil in which the human being grows not only physically but morally comfort lies indeed at the root of many virtues wealth is not necessary for comfort luxury requires wealth but not comfort a poor man's home moderately supplied with the necessaries of life presided over by a clearly frugal housewife may contain all the elements of comfortable living comfortlessness is for the most part caused not so much by the absence of sufficient means as by the absence of the requisite knowledge of domestic management comfort it must be admitted is in a great measure relative what is comfort to one man would be misery to another even the commonest mechanic of this day would consider it miserable to live after the style of the nobles a few centuries ago to sleep on straw beds and to live in rooms littered with rushes william the conqueror had neither a shirt to his back nor a pane of glass to his windows queen elizabeth was one of the first to wear silk stockings the queens before her were stockingless comfort depends as much on persons as on things it is out of the character and temper of those who govern homes that the feeling of comfort arises much more than out of handsome furniture heated rooms or household luxuries and conveniences comfortable people are kindly tempered good temper may be set down as an invariable condition of comfort there must be peace mutual forbearance mutual help and a disposition to make the best of everything better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith comfortable people are persons of common sense discretion prudence and economy they have a natural affinity for honesty and justice goodness and truth they do not run into debt for that is a species of dishonesty they live within their means and lay by something for a rainy day they provide for the things of their own household yet they are not wanting in hospitality and benevolence on fitting occasions and what they do is done without ostentation comfortable people do everything in order 
They are systematic, steady, sober, industrious. They dress comfortably. They adapt themselves to the season, neither shivering in winter nor perspiring in summer. They do not toil after a fashionable appearance. They expend more on warm stockings than on gold rings and prefer healthy, good bedding to gaudy window curtains. Their chairs are solid, not gimcrack. They will bear sitting upon, though they may not be ornamental. The organization of the home depends, for the most part, upon woman. She is necessarily the manager of every family and household. How much, therefore, must depend upon her intelligent cooperation? Man's life revolves around woman. She is the son of his social system. She is the queen of domestic life. The comfort of every home mainly depends upon her, upon her character, her temper, her power of organization, and her business management. A man may be economical, but unless there be economy at home, his frugality will be comparatively useless. A man cannot thrive, the proverb says, unless his wife let him. House thrift is homely, but beneficent. Though unseen of the world, it makes many people happy. It works upon individuals, and by elevating them, it elevates society itself. It is, in fact, a receipt of infallible efficacy for conferring the greatest possible happiness upon the greatest possible number. Without it, legislation, benevolence, and philanthropy are mere palliatives, sometimes worse than useless, because they hold out hopes which are for the most part disappointed. How happy does a man go forth to his labor or his business, and how doubly happy does he return from it, when he knows that his means are carefully husbanded and wisely applied by a judicious and well-managing wife. Such a woman is not only a power in her own house, but her example goes forth amongst her neighbors, and she stands before them as a model and a pattern. The habits of her children are formed after her habits. Her actual life becomes the model after which they unconsciously mold themselves. For example always speaks more eloquently than words. It is instruction in action, wisdom at work. First among woman's qualities is the intelligent use of her hands and fingers. Everyone knows how useful, how indispensable to the comfort of a household is the tidy, managing, handy woman. Pestalozzi, with his usual sagacity, has observed that half the education of a woman comes through her fingers. There are wisdom and virtue at her finger ends. But intellect must also accompany thrift. They must go hand in hand. A woman must not only be clever with her fingers, but possessed of the power of organizing household work. There must be method. The late Sir Arthur Helps observed that, as women are at present educated, they are for the most part thoroughly deficient in method. But this surely might be remedied by training. To take a very humble and simple instance, why is it that a man cook is always better than a woman cook? simply because a man is more methodical in his arrangements and relies more upon his weights and measures. An eminent physician told me that he thought women were absolutely deficient in the appreciation of time, but this I hold to be merely one instance of their general want of accuracy, for which there are easy remedies, that is, easy if begun early enough. Accordingly, to manage a household efficiently there must be method. Without this, Work cannot be got through satisfactorily, either in offices, workshops, or households. By arranging work properly, by doing everything at the right time, and with a view to the economy of labor, a large amount of business can be accomplished. Muddle flies before method, 
and hugger-mugger disappears. There is also a method in spending, in laying out money, which is as valuable to the housewife as method is in accomplishing her work. Money slips through the fingers of some people like quicksilver. We have already seen that many men are spendthrifts, but many women are the same. At least they do not know how to expend their husband's earnings to the best advantage. You observe things very much out of place. Frills and ruffles and ill-darned stockings, fine bonnets and clouded shoes, silk gowns and dirty petticoats, while the husband goes about ragged and torn with scarcely a clean thing about him. Industry is, of course, essential. This is the soul of business. But, without method, industry will be less productive. Industry may sometimes look like confusion, but a methodical and industrious woman gets through her work in a quiet, steady style, without fuss or noise or dust clouds. Prudence is another important household qualification. Prudence comes from cultivated judgment. It means practical wisdom. It has reference to fitness, to propriety. It judges of the right thing to be done and of the right way of doing it. It calculates the means, order, time, and method of doing. Prudence learns much from experience, quickened by knowledge. Punctuality is another eminently household qualification. How many grumblings would be avoided in domestic life by a little more attention being paid to this virtue? Late breakfasts and late dinners, too late for church and market, cleanings out of time, and washings protracted till midnight, bills put off with a call again tomorrow, engagements and promises unfulfilled. What a host of little nuisances spring to mind, at thought of the unpunctual housewife. The unpunctual woman, like the unpunctual man, becomes disliked because she consumes our time, interferes with our plans, causes uneasy feelings, and virtually tells us that we are not of sufficient importance to cause her to be more punctual. To the businessman, time is money. And to the businesswoman, it is more. It is peace, comfort, and domestic prosperity. Perseverance is another good household habit. Lay down a good plan and adhere to it. Do not be turned from it without a sufficient reason. Follow it diligently and faithfully, and it will yield fruits in good season. If the plan be a prudent one, based on practical wisdom, all things will gravitate towards it, and a mutual dependence will gradually be established among all the parts of the domestic system. We might furnish numerous practical illustrations of the truth of these remarks, but our space is nearly filled up, and we must leave the reader to supply them from his or her own experience. There are many other illustrations which might be adduced of the art of making life happy. The management of the temper is an art full of beneficent results. By kindness, cheerfulness, and forbearance, we can be happy almost at will, and at the same time spread happiness about us on every side. We can encourage happy thoughts in ourselves and others. We can be sober in habit. What can a wife and her children think of an intemperate husband and father? We can be sober in language and shun cursing and swearing, the most useless, unmeaning, and brutal of vulgarities. Nothing can be so silly and unmeaning, not to say shocking, repulsive, and sinful, as the oaths so common in the mouths of vulgar swearers. They are profanation without purpose, impiety without provocation, blasphemy without excuse. This leads us to remark in passing 
that in this country we are not sufficiently instructed in the art of good manners. We are rather gruff and sometimes unapproachable. Manners do not make the man, as the proverb alleges, but manners make the man much more agreeable. A man may be noble in his heart, true in his dealings, virtuous in his conduct, and yet unmannerly. Suavity of disposition and gentleness of manners give the finish to the true gentleman. By good manners we do not mean etiquette. This is only a conventional set of rules adopted by what is called good society, and many of the rules of etiquette are of the essence of rudeness. Etiquette does not permit genteel people to recognize in the streets a man with a shabby coat, though he be their brother. Etiquette is a liar, and it's not at home, ordered to be told by servants to callers at inconvenient seasons. Good manners include many requisites, but they chiefly consist in politeness, courtesy, and kindness. They cannot be taught by rule, but they may be taught by example. It has been said that politeness is the art of showing men, by external signs, the internal regard we have for them. But a man may be perfectly polite to another without necessarily having any regard for him. Good manners are neither more nor less than beautiful behavior. It has been well said that a beautiful form is better than a beautiful face, and a beautiful behavior is better than a beautiful form. It gives a higher pleasure than statues or pictures. It is the finest of fine arts. Manner is the ornament of action, indeed a good action, and without a good manner of doing it, is stripped of half its value. A poor fellow gets into difficulties and solicits help of a friend. He obtains it, but is with a, there, take that, but I don't like lending. The help is given with a kind of kick and is scarcely accepted as a favor. The manner of the giving long rankles in the mind of the acceptor. Thus, good manners mean kind manners, benevolence being the preponderating element in all kinds of pleasant intercourse between human beings. A story is told of a poor soldier having one day called at the shop of a hairdresser who was busy with his customers and asked relief, stating that he had stayed beyond his leave of absence and unless he could get a lift on the coach, fatigue and severe punishment awaited him. The hairdresser listened to his story respectfully and gave him a guinea. "'God bless you, sir,' exclaimed the soldier, astonished at the amount. "'How can I repay you? I have nothing in the world but this.' pulling out a dirty piece of paper from his pocket. It is a receipt for making blacking. It is the best that was ever seen. Many a half guinea I have had for it from the officers, and many bottles I have sold. May you be able to get something for it to repay you for your kindness to the poor soldier. Oddly enough, that dirty piece of paper proved worth half a million of money to the hairdresser. It was no less than the receipt for the famous Day and Martin's backing, the hairdresser being the late wealthy Mr. Day, whose manufactory is one of the notabilities of the metropolis. End of section 29